Good. Hey, um, how many of you guys made New Year's resolutions? Anyone? Okay, how many, are, how many of you already broke your New Year's resolution? Okay, great. Thanks for, for being honest. Um, you know, I, I tend not to make New Year's resolutions um, just because I usually don't have the willpower or the discipline to follow through. But there is one thing that um, has just been on my mind for the last couple months that in some ways is the issue beneath the issue of all the areas we, where we want to grow, where we want to see transformation occur, where we want to move forward, whether that's in our careers, whether that's in our relationship with Jesus, whether that's in our marriages, whether that's in our friendships, community, or even just at peace with ourselves. There are many areas where we're tempted to make these New Year's resolutions. And the truth is, at times, um, I think we come to the Bible, and we would like it a lot more if it was much more like a manual. You know, it kind of gave us the, the, the code or the plan or the steps to tell us to get how, we're, to get, tell us to how we can get where we want to go. Um, I know at times I can come to the Bible and think of it that way, almost like a manual for life, but, but it's really not. In fact, it's much more of a story, and what the Bible tends to emphasize more than anything else is wisdom, is wisdom. So not necessarily an answer to any one situation or problem, God, should I move here? God, should I date that person? God, should I take this job? God, should I, whatever it might be, but rather God promotes and encourages and pushes us toward wisdom. Because the truth of the matter is God is much more concerned about us not cracking a code, but cultivating character. That we would become the type of men and women who would pursue God and have the wisdom and character that was cultivated through our relationship with him, through our humility, through our repentance that would push us to make wise decisions. And so what I want to talk about today, what I really want us to focus in on, I think is the root issue when it comes to being wise, when it comes to really having a heart, a mentality, an approach that pushes us forward through our situations, that helps us grow, that helps us learn, that helps us experience more of God, that helps us see more deeply who Jesus is. I don't know if you guys um, are familiar with this on social media, probably in the last couple of years, there's been this thing called the humble brag. You guys seen some of this? I know Corinne probably has. She's always up on social media. But this thing called the humble brag, which is kind of a way for you to brag while appearing to be humble. Um, two of them that I found on, uh, online were these. One was, oh man, I got straight A's for the fourth semester in a row. Now my brothers are calling me a dork. So it's this, wow, woe is me. I can't believe I'm so successful at school. Or I got promoted. I'm going to make more money, but now I'm going to have to get up earlier. Pray for me. It's this notion of sorts of, I want to tell you how great, how awesome things are for me, but I want to do it in this packaged, self-deprecating way. And the truth is that all of us have this underlying current of pride. Of pride. Pride which pervades and pushes and pulsates through our actions, our ambitions, our desires, and our life. Jerry Bridges, one of my favorite authors, he says this, that pride ultimately is contending for supremacy with God. That pride, pride is contending for supremacy with God. That when you and I look at this world and we realize that we're made in the image of God, that we're creatures rather than the creator, we still look at God and we say, I think I can do a better job than you. I think if I was to govern my life and set the rules and understand how things operate and to make my own decisions, my will would be better than your will, God. 
And really, this is nothing new. This is the human story in many ways. Ever since Genesis 1, 2, and 3, where humans have been shaking their fist at God and saying, not your will be done, but my will be done, rejecting what God would have for us, instead thinking we know better. This is the very root of pride. And pride isn't just one of those things that affects our relationship with God, because it absolutely does, but there's consequences that cascade down into all other avenues of our person, our relationship, and our life. See, pride isn't one of those things that just separates us from God, but it also separates us from others. Pride blinds us. Pride kills us. Here's what happens when we're prideful. Pride causes destruction. It causes us to become self-deceived. It makes us so that we stop listening. We forget that others are not our enemy, but often have words of wisdom to speak into our lives. We become overly defensive and sometimes critical and complain at the least amount of things because, once again, we're contending for supremacy with God. We forgot that God is God and we are not. And when you forget that, when you forget that order of creation, that God is God and you are not, you will inevitably begin to complain about what God is doing and who God is and the decisions that he's making. And life becomes frustrating and often futile and difficult. Here's how the author of Proverbs said a great caution as pride plays out in our lives. He says, before a downfall, the heart is haughty, which is a fun word. We don't use that one much in the English language. Maybe we should. Everyone use it tomorrow at work. Before a downfall, the heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. So what the what the author's teaching us is that there's this relationship, there's this connection, there's this correlation between pride and the actions that it results in in our lives and how it plays out. Once again, the cascading effects, the pour over. Um, a few years ago when I was in seminary and Crystal and I lived in Denver, one icy cold night, we were driving back from the gym and it was late and I had traveled down this road many times. And this night though, the road had basically turned into an ice rink and I um, was, was probably going a little too fast. So Crystal begins to nudge me and says, slow down, slow down, you're, go- you're going too fast. And I'm like, you know what? I've driven in the snow, I've driven in blizzards, I've driven in ice way more than you. I think I've got this. And I continued down this hill, and she kept nudging me. She kept elbowing me, and I, I was like, quit being a backseat driver. Just let me be. Like, I- I've got this. I've got it taken care of. Next thing I know, I begin to lose control of the wheel, and I veer off and slam into this median, crushing my front axle. In that moment, Crystal just looks at me, and she gives that look. You know that look if you're married? Just that look. She didn't have to say anything. It was just this look of pride comes before the fall. Pride comes before an $1,100 crushed front axle. And it was a very expensive moment for me, but what it was is my pride was leading me to a crushed moment. Instead of heeding, instead of humbling myself, instead of being willing to listen, I doubled down on my pride. Yeah, you're laughing because you know it's true. Um, and, and this is the truth. This is the very nature of reality. I mean, we can try and deny this, but you're just as well to deny gravity as you are that pride leads to a fall. That pride leads to self-delusion. It leads to self-deception. It leads to hardness of heart. It leads to disconnection from others around us. It leads to frustration and futility in our work, in our marriages, and in our churches. And most importantly, our relationship with God. Our hearts become cold. They become hard. We feel entitled. We feel embittered and frustrated that God has not done what we think he should do because we forget that we're not God and he is. And this is the sinful bent. This is the tendency of our heart to think we know better than God does. 
James says it this way. I love it. James is just super blunt. Um, but this is a fun thing to think about uh, as, as we see this picture crystallized for us. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes. This is a very interesting word. For me, when, when I hear this, I almost think of, um, of the Heisman pose, the Heisman stiff arm, of this idea that if there was anyone you wouldn't want opposing you in all the universe, it would be God, right? Like, you may have a bad boss. You may have someone who's on your case all the time. You may have someone who annoys you or frustrates you. But I guarantee you, the last person you want opposing you to be in opposition to you is God. And James is incredibly blunt with us. He's telling us that if you're prideful, if you continue to walk stiff neck through life, if you continue to think you always know best and you can make all the right decisions and you trust in your own intellect and mind and decision-making, God is in opposition to you. And yet there's this, there's this incredible reality that the, the gaze of God seems to go with those who are humble. And that God's grace shows up in incredible ways to those who will humble themselves. Here's what I mean by the word humble. Humility, and, and, and once again, it's hard for me to talk about humility because I'm learning. I'm not humble. I'm right there with all of you. I'm preaching to myself this morning that I want to grow in humility, that I want to be teachable, that I want to see more clearly, that I want to know who I am, that I want to be able to receive the corrections of friends and the wounds of those who know me so that I might grow and I might become more like Jesus. But here's what humility is. Humility is being able to assess and know yourself in light of God's holiness and your sinfulness. Humility is having a clear and right and accurate understanding of who you are and being able to soberly assess yourself, as Paul tells us in the book of Romans, in light of God's holiness and your sinfulness. John Calvin, uh, the great reformer, he opens up his, his magnum opus, the Institutes of Christian Religion Institutes, by saying that the more we know who God is, the more it will lead us to know who we are. And the more we know who we are, the more we'll know who God is. That there's this cyclical nature that as we're willing to repent of our sin and be honest and humble and let others speak into our life, we gain clarity, we gain greater understanding. See, um, there's another short, cheesy story. But in, in high school, uh, I lived in Las Vegas, and we would go off-roading. So anytime, especially it would rain a little bit in the desert, we'd hop in my buddy's Jeep, and we would just go out and tear the place up. I mean, you're not supposed to do this either. It's really bad for the environment. But we were 16, and we, just, we didn't care. So we'd just head on out there. And one time I was driving, and I remember we just tore up this whole entire area that had been soaked with water, and it was muddy everywhere, and I got mud all over the front windshield. And like any smart, um, intelligent 16-year-old, I decided to push down even harder on the gas and go even faster. And here's the thing. I was driving blind. And in some ways, in some ways, because of my haughtiness, my arrogance, my hubris, I was actually going faster the more blind I was. I couldn't see, but I continued to propel forward. I wonder, how much does pride do that in our lives at times? We can't see. We're blinded. We've become self-deceived. We no longer listen to the correction of others. We dismiss anyone who would have something hard for us to hear. And sometimes we double down on the direction we're heading in, and we go even faster, saying, well, what do they know? There's no way they really understand. Why should I listen to them? Those people are just whatever, jerks, whatever you, whatever you want to fill it in with. And we find ways to dismiss the views of others. Every single one of us struggles with pride because deep down pride is just 
the essence of self-concern. That I'm looking out for me, that I'm focused on me, that I want me to be considered. Um, I just think of it this way. Really easy way to understand pride. I just like isms, so I decided to make one up. Um, at its core, pride is self-concern, or as I call it, it's, it's meism. It's just meism. It's, it's, it's not looking around saying, God, thank you for this world. God, thank you for what you're doing. God, thank you for all your blessings. God, I want to submit to you. I want to surrender to you. I want to repent of my sin. I want to trust you. I want to follow you. I want to be in community so that other people can speak into my life. But instead, it's this tendency, it's this propensity toward me. What about me? Who's going to focus on me? Who is looking out for me? I want to be practical here, just give you guys some, some examples, some ways to see this, even in your life. And I think these hit home for all of us. The prideful person says, who's going to serve me and my needs? It's that question, that's the predominant bent, that's the proclivity, that's the attitude as you go into a work situation or a family situation, or even as you look at your relationship with God, you say, who's going to serve me and meet my needs? And the humble person the person who practices and walks in humility and sees things clearly for who they are and who God has made them to be, instead says, how can I serve others? The prideful person is critical of the faults of others and is always complaining. The humble person is looking for how God is working and celebrates. That's, that's just criticism versus gratitude. And there's so much you can tell about your heart, diagnosing your heart, seeing where you're truly at by saying, do I, do I tend to criticize or I tend, do I tend to be grateful? Do I praise or do I tear down? Are my words giving life or are my words always deconstructing? How are you using your tongue? God has given you a tongue to bless others and to build life into them. It's such a misnomer. It's a lie that we were told as kids that sticks and stones may break our bones, but words may never hurt us. The truth is, is that words hurt terribly. Often people walk with the scars of them from words they've heard from their mom and dad for decades. So how do you use your words? The prideful person goes to people who have something to offer them. They view relationships as transactional. They use people to get more stuff. The humble person appreciates those that are different and in need. The humble person looks and says, I'm not going to use people to get more stuff, but I want to use stuff to bless people. It's a completely different way of looking at life. Last one, uses others for personal gain. The humble person looks to equip others for life and ministry. C.S. Lewis, uh, I'm sure a lot of you guys have read his books, a phenomenal author. In fact, if there's one thing you maybe start your year doing, maybe check out Mere Christianity, his book. I was just reading it again this week. He says that pride is the chief of all sin because what it does is it rewires our orientation to say, God, I'm going to sit on the throne of my life. That underneath every sin is pride. It's this bent to say, God, I'm going to take you off the throne. I'm not going to let you have your authority. I'm not going to submit to you. I'm not going to trust you, but rather I know better. What I want you to hear, too, is that humility, humility, sometimes we have this, this misconception of humility even, that it means to be very meek and mild and timid, and you don't have any opinions, or you don't speak up, or you're just kind of aw shucks, you know, Barney Five style. That was an old reference, so Barney, sorry. Um, I'll find a way to update that. Um, but here's what humility is. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. That's what C.S. Lewis tells us. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. So I'm not telling you that what it means to be humble is to have the very low view of who you are, but rather it means you think of yourself less because you know who you are in Christ. 
If you know who you are in Christ, you're loved, you're adopted. In fact, you matter so much that Jesus spilled his blood for you. But that frees you to, in fact, get over yourself, to think of yourself less. And pride, pride functions as a prison for you and I. Pride serves as this jail that walls us off from being able to build relationships with other people. No one likes being around prideful people. There's a stench. There's this attitude. There's this disposition in which it's not life-giving. You don't want to be around someone who's prideful because there's not much to engage. It walls us off from connection and love. Pride eats away at our ability to relate to others and to be known and to care for others. Once again, if you look at Genesis 3, as pride takes root, Adam and Eve separate from one another. They cover up in shame, and then they deflect blame. They say, it's not my fault. It's not my responsibility. They push away. And here's the, here's the truth. Pride is absolutely exhausting. It is so exhausting and tiresome to be prideful to keep up the appearance, to keep up the charade that you know everything, that you've got it figured out, that you don't need to change, that you don't need to grow, that there's nowhere you need to repent of, it's absolutely exhausting. When Jesus invites us and says, come to me, all you who are weary, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, he's calling the prideful. He's saying you can give up thinking you've got it all together. You can give up letting everyone think you've got it all figured out. You can surrender and feel secure. Pride is a piranha that preys on community. It preys on our inner peace and our sense of satisfaction. And most of all, it preys on our relationship with Jesus. Jesus demands complete authority and submission from you and I. Even when things are hard, even when things are difficult, even when things don't make sense, Jesus tells us to follow. And often it's, it's when we follow Jesus, when we're obedient to Jesus, when we trust Jesus, when things don't make sense, that that's where he shows up and he serves us the most. That we experience the balm of his grace and the love of his presence. Now, I know what a lot of you guys are thinking because I'm thinking the exact same thing. Humility is risky. We live in, 2000, I was going to say 15, 2016, we live in 2016, um, and, and it's tough as you go through a world with so many other folks thinking, who's going to look out for me? Will I get lost in the crowd if I'm really humble and I start serving other people and I consider them and I think about them and I put their needs before mine? Doesn't that mean I'm just going to become a mat and people are going to walk all over me? Isn't that what it means? I mean, humility just seems really risky because deep down, there's a lot of I mean, my, my little girl, Grace, she's five, and there's a lot of that inner five-year-old still in me. Who's going to look out for me? Who's going to take care of me? Who's going to make sure my needs are met? And humility is really risky because you're almost betting. You're having the faith. You're having the trust that if you serve others, that if you care for others, that in some ways this will lead to joy and satisfaction. See, pride is a consumer orientation. It says that there's something out there I need to satiate, to satisfy, to bring me peace. And humility says, my joy is found in Jesus. My trust is found in Jesus. My hope is found in Jesus. My identity is found in Jesus. 
And so ask yourself, I mean, spend some time this week asking yourself, do you have a consumer orientation that reveals pride in your relationships, in your life, and even in your relationship with God? Is your orientation consumeristic or is it one of servanthood? As you look around and you say, man, I really want to experience more of Jesus. Well, here's what it's often going to look like. If you want to experience more of Jesus, it's going to require you often to say, I'm prideful. I need to repent. I need to trust him. I need to follow him, even if it doesn't make sense right now. And for some of us, we need to begin exercising the gifts that God's given us and to begin to serve others. For some of us, it's prideful for us to say, Jesus, I don't have enough time for you. I don't have enough time to make disciples. I don't have enough time to serve. I don't have enough time to look out for others. Jesus is just saying, trust me. What I'm offering you, the way of life that I'm offering you is much better than the story of consumerism and individualism and looking out for yourself. Pride says, I know best. God, you don't know best, but I know best. But really, here's the thing. Insecurity is what's beneath that. Insecurity. Pride says, I need to defend myself. So if I get into a conflict, if I have an argument, if me and my spouse are having a disagreement, if I got a bad performance review at work, if I feel convicted by the Holy Spirit of some sin, of something in my life, a sin of omission or commission, something that I should be doing or something that I should not be doing, we find a way to deflect, we find a way to blame, we find a way to excuse or to rationalize. Are you overly defensive? Do you defend yourself? Peter tells us that when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. He didn't defend himself, but rather he, let, he waited on the Lord and he trusted that God the Father would defend him. How about this? Do you have trouble listening? Do you have trouble listening? Um, I'm just going to admit it. A couple weeks ago, I was in a conversation with someone at church here, and they were talking for about 30 seconds. And I just had to stop them and say, you know, I'm really sorry. I have not heard anything you said for the last 30 seconds. I was preoccupied. I was thinking about something else. I was thinking about what I wanted to say. I was thinking about all the things I need to do. And I forgot the person right there in front of me. Unable to listen, preoccupied, self-centered, meism, focused on me. And here's the truth. I was missing out on being able to engage and enjoy this person's presence and to hear what God was doing in their life. Number four, constant comparing and criticizing. When you look at your life, and even especially for us in America, it becomes really easy to compare, um, to see what everyone else has, to see what everyone else is doing, to see what everyone else has accomplished. And we find ourselves at times even being overly critical of them or those around us or their faults or their weaknesses. Here's the thing. C.S. Lewis also talks about this, and he's brilliant, and he's absolutely right. The things that annoy you the most about other people are often the things that you are most guilty of yourself. So if you look at someone and say they talk too much, they want to be the center of attention, they want everyone to focus on them, they're really annoying, there could be because you're bumping up, you're rubbing up against something that is all too familiar and close to you. I have found that the people that frustrate me the most, that seem to annoy me the most, are really just highlighting some of the things about me that are true. Just something to think about. So what I want us to do, just a little bit more time, is I want us to look at Mark 10. Mark 10. So you guys can look at it. There's a Bible in front of you. Also, I have the words up on the screen. 
Um, I want us to look at Mark 10 and uh, just a short story where I think Jesus illustrates so much of this for us. And I'm going to start in verse 35. Let's start in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said, up to him, who's Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. So this is incredible. James and John walk up to Jesus and basically ask for a blank check. Jesus, we're not going to tell you what it is. We just want you to do whatever we say. Is that cool? Is that cool? I mean, I, I have kids, and that's, that's a question that I would never answer in the affirmative. My kids just said, just, Daddy, make me a promise that you'll keep, and then I'll tell you what it is. This, is. this is almost like they're trying to ensnare or entrap Jesus. But they come up and say, Jesus, give us a blank check. And I love how Jesus responds. And he said to them, what do you want me to do? So he kind of indulges them. He says, okay, I'll play this out. I'll see what's really going on. And what's great is he's going to get them to reveal their hearts and what they're really motivated by. And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. So what James and John are basically asking, they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, Jesus, we've been paying attention. We've been watching your trajectory. We've been seeing your platform build. And we think where this is leading is that eventually you're going to rule over Rome. You're going to help us overthrow Rome and we're going to take over Jerusalem and you're going to have this big, awesome throne and we want to sit on each side of you. We want to call the shots. We want to make sure that we have the proper seating, attention, respect, and admiration as things play out. They're trying to secure their seats. There is a deep sense of meism. James and John are looking out for themselves. Now, what's really funny about this is, if you know anything about the Gospels, is there's 10 other guys who are right there. There's 10 other disciples. So at some point, James and John have decided to almost conspire with one another and say, let's see if we can get a leg up on the other 10 guys. Let's see if we can beat them to, be, beat them to the punch and be the first guys who say to Jesus, can we have those most premium spots? It's great. It's absolutely great. Because here's what happens. And you'll see this in verse 41 as you move down a little bit. The other disciples, they begin to hear this. They hear this conversation, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Indignant, another fun word. You can use that one at work tomorrow as well. Indignant. They're outraged. They're looking at James and John and going, how dare you? We can't believe this is what you're doing. We're here, we're following Jesus, we're trusting him, and you guys are looking out for yourself. Now, as I look at the story, I just see so much of myself even in James and John. This tendency to look out for themselves, to be self-serving, to have a meism type attitude. Jesus says, what do you want for me to do? And they quickly go for broke. Say, Jesus, we want the most premium seats. We want to be right at your side. This gets really right to the core. Ask yourself, because I, I can't answer it for you. I, I just have to answer it for myself as, as I read through this passage. When, when I want honor, when I want praise, when I want glory, at the root of that, at the root of that is this, this prideful disposition that causes me to think that God is somehow not satisfying enough. That God in his infinite blessings and mercies and provision through his work on the cross is not satisfying enough, but rather I need to secure my own place 
that I need to secure my own identity. Soren Kierkegaard, one of the great philosophers, Danish philosopher of the, the 18th century, he said that pride was really building your identity on anything other than Jesus. Building your identity on anything other than Jesus. I think that's exactly what we see going on with James and John. There is this desire to build their identity on anything other than Jesus. The, the other ten, there's a fascinating thing I want us to see there too. And we can usually skip right by this and we don't notice it. So I really want us to see it. Because there's a lot of us in here in this, this room. I think we might suffer from what I call, call arrogant pride. And arrogant pride is this. Everyone needs to respect me. And I think this is where James and John are. They want positions where people are going to respect them. And then there's this other form. There's this other more subtle form of pride that we sometimes miss by. And that's weak pride. And that's that everyone must like me. Everyone must like me. So some people, your tendency, your, your idolatry, your temptation is going to be, I want everyone to respect me. And others of you, you're going to want everyone to like you. But really, both of them are a form of pride. In fact, if you want everyone to like you, often it's going to keep you from trying something new, from being willing to learn, from being willing to fail, from being willing to build a new relationship. It's going to inhibit you from being who God made you to be. Because really, it's this, this woe is me, who am I, am I really good enough? And we fail to trust in what Jesus has said about who we are and our identity. So there's arrogant pride, but there's also a, a weak form of pride, which is a little bit more subtle. Here's our passage closes out in verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. So what Jesus is saying is, I want to tell you guys about the ways of the world. As we look around at the ways of the world, we see at the Gentiles, we see about the reigning structures of our society, that the Gentiles, they use their authority, they use their leadership to rule and lord over other people. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Jesus is about to teach something incredibly countercultural. This is incredibly powerful and insightful. He says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be the first among you must be the slave of all. There's been uh, a number of really popular books in the last couple of years, especially in the arena of leadership. Um, one that's become almost a classic is a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. And he talks a ton about how the highest level leaders, the best leaders of all in all businesses and corporations actually are those who are willing to humble themselves and serve. It's another book that came out about a year and a half ago by another New York Times bestseller, not a Christian, but his book is called Leaders Eat Last. And the whole premise of the book, once again, is that if you really want to be great, you'll serve. It's funny, I almost would love to send a tweet or a text or an email to Jim Collins and Simon Sinek and tell them, Jesus beat you to the punch. Jesus knew that the way to be great was to serve. Jesus knew that the way to be great was to give yourself away. He's turning upside down the very structure of what it means to be great. To be great doesn't mean to be admired, to have the biggest platform, to have the most attention, to have the most people paying attention to you and people praising you, but it means to pour your life out for the sake of others. To make your life really count, to make your life really worthwhile, to make your life really matter, it means to give it away. How did, how did someone like Mother Teresa 
become one of the most revered, respected, and world-renowned people and figures. She didn't travel anywhere, hardly ever. She didn't go many places. She didn't write a book almost to the end of her life. She stayed in just this small little area in India among orphanages. She has this famous quote, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. If you want to change the world, go home and love your family. And I think that was just her simple way of saying, if if you really want to change the world, if you really want to make your life count, go serve someone. She spent her entire life pouring her life out, serving, caring, blessing, encouraging others. Mother Teresa realized that there was something beautiful, something fantastic, something life-changing in being willing to serve. But to be a servant, to really serve, to give yourself away, once again, it requires risk, because sometimes we want reciprocity. Like, if I do something nice for you, I want you to do something nice for me. It's a very tit-for-tat thing. Um, if, if I help you move, you're going to help me move. If I unload the dishwashers, you'll mow the lawn. If I do A, you do B. And it becomes very transactional. And so even when we serve, sometimes it can still have this self-centeredness of I'm serving, but I want to get something out of it. I want someone to notice. I want to get kudos. I want to get a pat on the back. I want someone to pay attention. Rather than realizing the reward for service is in who you're becoming. And that every time you exercise and use the gifts that God has given you and you display them for his glory and his renown, you become more like Jesus. And that in and of itself is the reward. Not that someone else would do something for you, but rather who you're becoming as you become more like Christ. And this causes us to return to humility. It's impossible to be a servant who expects no reciprocity, who expects no accolades, who expects no praises without being humble. And here's what humility really does, is humility takes the gunk off of the windshield of life and it allows us to see clearly. Once again, what's humility? It's accurately and clearly assessing and seeing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And when you see clearly, when you're humble, it begins to change everything. Work snaps into focus. Marriage snaps into focus. Community snaps into focus. Your relationship to Jesus begins to snap into focus. Humility creates clarity. It allows us to see clearly. It allows us to love others. It allows us to give our lives away. And here's the empowerment of humility, speaking of giving your life away. Verse 45. For the Son of Man who's Jesus Christ, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For the Son of Man, for Jesus, he came not to be served. And if anyone had the right to be served, it was Jesus. He's the God of the universe. He made everything. He rules and reigns over everyone. He sits in palaces above all of creation ruling and reigning, having complete discretion and authority over everything. And yet he comes down into human flesh and he enters into our world and he identifies with our suffering and he's betrayed, he's mocked, he's abused, he's taken advantage of, he's misunderstood. Not for his sake, but for our sake. So Jesus is not here to be served, but he's here to serve so much so that he would eventually go to a cross and he would suffer a humiliating death. First being whipped 
and beaten and mocked and spit upon. And Jesus would go to that cross, as, as Mark 10.45 says, to give his life as a ransom for many. This word ransom, what it means is, is to set someone free. To pay for someone's freedom. To pay for someone's liberty. So when Jesus looks down at this world, he sees you and I in bondage and captivity to sin. There's no escaping it. There's this meism, there's this bent, there's proclivity, because sin is not out there. It's not a virus, but it's inside of me. It's part of my nature. It's who I've become. I'm self-centered to my core, and I need Jesus to show up. I need someone to ransom me. I need someone to set me free. And so Jesus comes and he pays the ransom so that I am set free. Paul, I mean, if you love systematic theology, really Romans is about as close as you're going to get to a, a, a book of the Bible at systematic theology. He unpacks this in, in Romans 6, 7, 8, and 9. And talks about how you go from being in the dominion of sin, how you are chained, imprisoned to sin. And Jesus comes and he sets you free. And in fact, you have a new master. You're now a slave to righteousness. You're a slave to Jesus. You're free to follow Jesus. You're free to trust Jesus. He's ransomed you. He has set you free. There's no more condemnation for you. If you're a Christian, you walk in freedom. If you're not a Christian, Jesus is offering to ransom you. He's offering to liberate you from your sin, to free you from your sin, from your addiction to sin. And from God's wrath that comes along with that. Jesus pays our death sentence. He pays the penalty for our sin. And because of that, because our great king, who not only comes to just set us free and to ransom us, but he also gives us a new life. He gives us a new nature. This is what regeneration is. You guys have a new heart. Do you realize that? Do you realize that you're actually free to follow Jesus in joyful obedience? You actually don't have to continue along the same cul-de-sac of your sin. You don't have to stay in that same spot of addiction and brokenness and sorrow. You don't have to let sin rule over you. But rather, you have a God who's come to set you free. And not only did he set you free, but he said, come and follow me. And he's giving you a Holy Spirit that enables that and makes that possible so that you can run hard. You can chase after Jesus. You can stir your affections for the things of God. And I, I really, I pray, I hope, I'm desperate that in 2016, this is a year where redemption grows deeply in our joy for Jesus. That we realize there's actually a victory that's been won, that Jesus has defeated Satan, sin, and death. Not because he came to be served but because he came to serve. And if Jesus, if, if, if the God of the universe is willing to serve, shouldn't you be? Shouldn't I be? Here's what we learn about humility. Humility frees us to serve, and so does Jesus' work on the cross. And so does the regenerative work that he's done in our lives. Humility frees us to connect deeply with God and with others. When I'm humble, I can listen to what others have to say. When I'm humble, every criticism, every correction, every feedback is not an attack, but it might be something from the Holy Spirit. Um, one of the saddest things, and you guys probably all have these people in your life, the 
The saddest thing is when you have a friend, a coworker, a family member who you will see go decade after decade after decade with this one thing that everyone around them sees about their personality, about their attitude, about their work ethic, about their habits. And everyone sees it. It's like walking through life with a giant piece of food on your face. And everyone sees it, but you won't listen. It's almost like someone saying, you got ketchup all over your face. And every time someone brings it up, you go, no, I don't. No, no ketchup here. None at all. No ketchup. I'm good. And they just keep walking through life with ketchup on their face. How many of us do that with sin? How many of us do that with areas of our life that we're not ready to be honest about? How many of you spent 2015 and 2014 and 2013 enslaved to a sin that's in secrecy? And you want out. You want to be free. You want it to be over but your pride keeps you there. You're, it's, your, it's just your pride. That's all it is. Because there's freedom. Here's what else James tells us. James tells us in, in James 5, if you confess your sins, not only to God, but then this is what he says, to one another, to one another, you will be healed. It's incredible. There's this healing, restorative power that when we're willing to get honest with ourselves and with God and with others, transformation really begins to occur. Don't go through another year. I beg you, I plead you. If you're that person, if you're that guy, if you're that gal, whether it's, whether it's this, this attitude of bitterness, of frustration, of hurt, of resentment, or pornography, or some other addiction, and you thought you can manage it, and you continue to keep it secret, and you don't want to tell anyone because you're afraid what they'll think of you, and you're going to go a whole other year wrestling and battling with it in quiet. Why? Don't be prideful. Humble yourself. Give it up today. Stop. Tell someone. There's grace upon grace upon grace for those who will confess their sins. That's what Jesus did. He came and died on a cross so that you could confess your sins and be honest. And last but not least, it's really practical. Uh, Humility, once again, because we begin to see clearly, makes our world much more big and grand. Uh, I tell my girls all the time, especially when they come up to me and tell me they're bored, I tell them there's no such thing as being bored. There's just boring um, and here's what I mean by that, is if you're curious, if you're humble and you're willing to ask good questions and look around you and listen to other people, like I wasn't willing to listen to that person when they were talking to me, you'll never be bored. There's fascination all around you. There's questions and things to be learned. There's areas to explore. There's things to understand. There's areas of your heart and who God is that require you to learn, that require you to be curious. But curiosity also comes with humility a deep sense of inquisitiveness about others around you and how they're doing and what's going on in their life and not just yours. And so what happens when we move from prideful to humble as well, our world goes from black and white to 3D. People around us get more interesting. Our coworkers, they get more interesting. The tasks in front of us get more interesting because we see where God's moving and where he's working and where he's going before us. And we see how he's using us. Our vision expands of this universe and how God is using us. Humility leads to reality. As Paul says in Romans 12, soberly assess yourself. Soberly. So what is it for you? What is it in 2016 where you need to humble yourself? Do you need to invite other people to explore and to probe and ask questions about your life? Maybe you haven't done that because you're afraid of what they'll say. Do you need to repent of something? 
You need to come to Jesus and say, this, this, is, this is enough. This is over. I'm done. I'm confessing, not just to God, but also to those around me, those in community. I'm going to come clean. I'm going to move away from pride. You're going to soberly assess yourself. See, here's the truth. If you are humble, rebukes, opinions of others, the Bible are not attacks, but they're opportunities for growth. Repentance becomes your ally and your friend and you being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. As we look at this year, here's what I want you guys to see. I want you to have a really big God because the bigger God is, the smaller you'll be and the smaller you are, the more humble you'll be. I don't see anyone go to the Grand Canyon or stand at the base of Mount Rainier and think about themselves. How preposterous that we would stand before God and think about ourselves. God is vast. He's incredible. He's worth our worship. He's worth us remembering that he's the creator. Find honest community. If it's it's at Redemption, great. If it's at another church, that's fine too. If it's, I don't care where it is. I want you guys just to be known. I want you to be known. I want you to have someone who's safe. If you don't have a safe person in your life, come talk to me. I'll help you find community. I'll meet with you. I'll talk to you. I'm just, I'm tired of seeing people in bondage, in isolation, and not having community. Be grateful. Gratitude is the antidote to complaining and criticism and pride. For every one thing you see in your life that seems to be broken or falling apart, find five things that God is doing to bless you and to love you and to encourage you and help you. And last, repent of your sin. Trust Jesus. His arms are wide open for you. He loves you. He cares about you. Because he did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I'm going to read this in closing, and uh, then we'll sing a few more songs. I'll invite the band back up. Humility is really for the most confident people. It is the man or the woman who knows their identity is in Christ and is solid and secure. They won't wilt like a flower or be destroyed or devastated by the opinions of others. They won't let their successes or achievements or applause in their social circles go to their heads or contort their identity. They don't have to hide behind the fig leaves of accomplishment and status intelligence, appearance, in order to unlock acceptance, but know that they are loved more than they could ever imagine by the God of the universe. They don't have to pretend and be afraid of getting too close to others for fear of being found out to maintain a facade or being thought a phony. They're free to have blemishes. They're free to serve because they're free in Christ.